Well, hello there. Welcome. Mike Pasco here with another episode of Dissecting Philately, podcast offering glimpses into philatelic adventures of an academic anatomist. So glad you could join me for another episode. So let's go ahead and get into it. Well, just to begin with here, I wanted to let you all know how the podcast is doing. And I'm finding uh, that up to this point, just shy of 2,000 plays total. Uh, I'm using these statistics from the Anchor FM platform. I use Anchor uh, to distribute my podcast. So that's all going great. Um, Last time I checked in in April with you all, I was sitting in at 1,600 total plays. So things have definitely been trending upward. And that is good for um, interaction, engagement, good for the hobby, good for buzz around stamp collecting. And that's around 52 plays per episode as we are in episode number 16 here. Also, um, audience size is three, which at first glance was pretty shocking. But, you know, this is based on the last seven days. As I mentioned, the last time I came to you all with episode 15 was in April. And so it's been a long time. And I think with that seven day window, three people checking things out is, is pretty expected. So previously, the audience size was 37. We'll see how many of you of you all. Uh, check in and take a take a look at this uh, 16th episode in the next seven days and uh, maybe I'll have something more uh, interesting to share after that still dominated um, with listenership from the United States coming in at second place the UK is just edging out Canada at seven and six percent and I'm finding that the majority of people that are consuming this podcast are doing so using the Apple podcast platform And I was interested to see that Overcast has come into second place. And Overcast is the app that I use to listen to all of my podcasts, including several philatelic podcasts. I'll have to do an episode where I do a bit of a roll call uh, and go through all of those various amazing podcasts. So um, Overcast, if if you don't have that app, I would strongly recommend checking it out. I know it's uh, in the um, iOS ecosystem. It's on Apple iPhone devices. I don't know if it's available on Android, but do look at Overcast. It is a, is a nice freemium model with a lot of amazing podcast playback features. And I also get some data on which episode has had the most plays and the most excitement and, and interaction, and that is episode number 10. So already six episodes ago, I did an episode where I compared um, an anatomic reference document to a philatelic one. So I was talking about uh, in episode 10, Terminologia Anatomica, and what that is and why an anatomist might use that. Uh, Then I talked about Scott's specialized catalog, what that is, um, how I use it, how others use it. And then I drew several uh, comparisons and similarities between the two documents. So that was very popular. And I also have been, for the last several episodes, I've been doing a video version. So I am going to provide this as an audio file, and that will be distributed to many, many, many audio-based podcast platforms. The video of what I'm recording goes um, to Spotify. So if you're on Spotify um, and you weren't aware of this, uh, this is a video version. So you can look at your settings and look at your screen and try to find the video. 
uh, to accompany my audio. I do hold things up to the camera. I do have some slides that complement what I am speaking about. So I try to keep both audiences in mind as I'm presenting. And then because I have a video file, I go ahead and I up that, upload that to YouTube as well. So I have a YouTube channel officially now for Dissecting Philately. I think I did this with episodes 14 and 15, so I've only got two episodes up there. I think I tried doing a, uh, a video reel where I was doing something out in the world philatelic related and I made a quick video put on the channel as well. About 33 people are subscribing to that, holding very steady and still since April because I haven't put any content out since April. So uh, YouTube, that's a thing. Check it out. And now we come to the segment of the podcast by the numbers. And I think it's really neat to consider the progression of a podcast to keep track with the episode numbers and to find some meaning and some correlation with that number. So Sports Illustrated style, I grew up reading Sports Illustrated and uh, by the numbers, something very cool that, that you can do with sports, a lot of numbers in that uh, that area of life. And there's a lot of numbers in anatomy and philately too. So let's look at number 16, beginning with anatomy. So if you've got the visual accompanied, uh, you've got an image there, and I'm wondering if you know what that is. So let me give you some clues. Um, This is called the brachial plexus, and let's see if we can figure out how the number 16 fits into this anatomic concept. So first of all, just to keep it basic, the uh, brachial plexus is a consolidation or a network, um, a commingling of several things that come out of the vertebral column called spinal nerves. If you follow my cursor here, vertebral column is in the midline. This is an anterior view or or a front view, if you will, of the skeleton. And we can see these yellow and green things coming out bilaterally, or that is to say paired, from different segments. And each one of these pairs is a pair of spinal nerves, and they come from a certain spinal cord segment. And in anatomy, we use this nomenclature, C1 or C5, excuse me, C5 means the fifth pair from the cervical spinal cord. So I would say that um, what they're illustrating for us here is the spinal nerves that only are involved in coming together to do the brachial plexus, and they are C5 T1. So in anatomy speak, that means C5, C6, C7, C8, and T1. So we're going to look for five green pairs of spinal nerves coming out. They're going to go away from the vertebral column. They're going to come down to the collarbone. And really before we reach the collarbone, these different spinal nerve pieces have started to merge together and they're networking. And that's what a plexus is. So it's a really interesting concept. And what we can say in general is that the brachial plexus is going to provide the innervation for the upper limb. And before we get to those nerves, we do a lot of rearranging. And this is what makes understanding and mastering the brachial plexus really complicated. You have um, trunks that form initially. The trunks then go on to divide. So there are three trunks. They each have two divisions. So now you have six pieces to manage. And then those various six pieces go on to form three chords, right? We go from a three to a six to a three. Very counterintuitive. And then from those three chords, we have the branches of the brachial plexus coming. And by branches, I also mean nerves. So can you guess where the 16 fits into all of this? 
And it turns out there are 16 nerves that come off of the brachial plexus. Now, I should be clear that these nerves are not only coming off of the cords. Once we're past the collarbone and we're going into the axilla, aka armpit, we're going to have several branches that come off closer to the spine. But when we count close to the spine to the terminating branches all the way at the end of the plexus, we have 16 total nerves. And that number is very very fresh in my mind because 16 nerves is the number of nerves that I teach the physical therapy students. And that's basically where I went after the end of April. May was all about getting ready to teach PT students. June through August was doing the teaching. Uh, And then the rest has been recovery. So now the 16 nerve branches, this is something very much in the scope of practice for physical therapists. They need to be movement experts and they need to therefore understand every nerve that innervates every muscle in the body. And so I teach all 16 of these branches to PT students, and I teach far fewer to the other professions on our campus. So that's the anatomic number 16. Think about today that you've got a series of nerves coming out of your neck, out of your spine. They come down behind your collarbone. They go into your armpit, and they're giving off all of these branches to serve and innervate your upper limb so you can do the complex movements of that limb that you need to throughout the day. All right, so if you're a philatelist, you might be a little bit uh, ready or better prepared to know where I'm going with number 16 because the trend has been to go through the Scott's catalog in ascending numerical order, and really we've been going through the same 10-cent Washington design and now we're talking about various small differences in the way that the um, the stamp was produced, basically, that give it different catalog numbers. Okay, so here's that gorgeous green, my favorite color, by the way. Gorgeous green stamp um, picturing George Washington. So let's go through the stats here that make a number 16 a number 16, okay? So we've defined that this is according to the Scots. Uh, catalog system. See episode 10 uh, in the show notes. Uh, I'll have a link there for that if you'd like to learn a little bit more uh, about what I mean when I say the Scots catalog. This came out April 12th, 1855, so 167 years ago. 10 cent denomination, 10 cent value in other words. We see that in the scroll at the bottom, technically described as dark green, and we can have a lot of variation in the way people describe color as this is a subjective phenomenon. Yellowish green also appears in the catalog. Now we call it a number 16 because it is a type four. In previous episodes, we've talked about a type one, a type two, a type three, and a type four. And if you go to this amazing website called the Swedish Tiger, you'll see these great scans, these great images that he's put together. And he also has a great tutorial to in more detail explain what makes a one, a one, a type two, a two, and so on. That is probably a little too dry for me to go through in this podcast, but there are certain elements of the design that you focus on, uh, certain parts of the, the artwork here, the decorative ornaments that will help you determine which one you have specifically. And the way that this stamp was produced, <clears throat> a die was created, uh, and that was Uh, turned into a relief to plate transfer process. So now the design on the die is on the plate, which was ready to be inked and transferred to the stamp paper. Now there's plate one. That's the only plate 
Sometimes a stamp is a stamp. A catalog number is a catalog number because of the plate it comes from. We've got one plate to consider here. Uh, the company that did the printing, Toppin, Carpenter, ooh, Cassillet. Being a relatively intermediate philatelist, I've never heard anybody pronounce that. So I'm assuming it's probably a French pronunciation. Uh, maybe you guys can help me out with that. And of course, we already know that's our friend George Washington. This is a relatively hard to come by postage stamp. 200,000 were issued. Now I have to be careful with the term that I use, relatively rare, scarce. Uh, people get very sensitive to using those terms in philately. So I'll say something like, this is uncommon. Uh, we usually see postage stamps in, in the millions or billions. When we see something in the 200,000s, that is uncommon and harder to come by. Perforation, you may be aware that modern postage stamps um, have the serpentine die cut. That kind of helps you peel them off of their backing paper. Uh, and before that, of course, when we had the lick and stick, we had the little uh, holes that were punched in between connected stamps. And those were the perforations. But you, you know that when you look at these uh, early, early postage stamps in the 1850s, many of them are imperforate, which means the stamps were separated using a long pair of scissors uh, by the postal clerk, typically. And therefore, you have all kinds of interesting things that happen with regards to where the design is, how big the margins are. Uh, if we come over here and look at the example of the number 16 on cover, we can see how tightly packed these postage stamps were. They were very close. I don't know what the measurement is, but it looks like two millimeters, two or three millimeters. It's quite thin, it's quite narrow. So cutting adjacent stamps apart and giving them really big margins is almost impossible. So what somebody did to get a number 16 with these large margins, they were really cutting almost immediately up against the design of the adjacent stamps. Now, just a little bit about function because it's all good and great and, and fun for most people to collect postage stamps. And for, for many people, just having a number 16 um, is a dream come true. But really to appreciate the story and the function and the utility, think about 10 cents and think about this stamp as being used to pay for the letter rate getting your letter for distances greater than 3,000 miles, especially when the letter is under half an ounce. So that's a relatively small, maybe like a single page of writing that was folded. That looks like what we're seeing here, a, a folded cover, if you will, where you would just, there is no envelope. You would open up the letter and the actual writing would be on the inner aspect of that folded letter. So I know that I say making this stamp relatively common here. I think that is copy paste from the number 15, the number 14, the number 13. Those were more common. The number 16 is not. And so think about 3,000 miles uh, in the United States. That would be coast to coast. And this would be for a single stamp, of course. In the example here that I show, again, thank you, Swedish Tiger. Um, what we see here is somebody mailing uh, from the New York to Prussia. So that would have cost 30 cents. And so using three 10 cent uh, stamps would be quite appealing. And so that would help pay the fare uh, to get all the way to Prussia. And uh, the, if you were to think about the consumer price index, what does that mean? Like, what is 10 cents? Uh, you know, that's a dime today. You're telling me it was a dime to send 
a letter from coast to coast. I thought stamps were 60 cents right now. But when you think about it, this is the equivalent in 1855 of paying $3.23. Okay, so that is way more than what we pay to send um, domestic um, a letter uh, up to two ounces, I believe. So we are really um, in a very inexpensive postal system. I saw somebody put a chart on social media where they rated like the domestic rate to send a letter within countries. And the United States was all the way at the extreme low end of the scale on that chart. Uh, European countries, it costs relatively more money. If I can find that chart, I will uh, point it out to you. Do I have a number 16 in my collection? I do not. I have my eye out for a number 16 and hopefully someday I can find it. Um, I have a really good page in my stamp album with all of these 1850 issues um, that are imperforate. And the number 16 is an open hole. I believe I also need the number 15. But if I can get a 15 and a 16, I think I complete that series and I complete that page. And of course, uh, that really is exciting to me. All right, team. So that was education, a little cross education. I hope that you found something out either about anatomy or about stamp collecting, depending on who you are and what you do. And I am now coming to the part of the show where I just share what I've been up to uh, in the philatelic world. And I am not entirely convinced that this is the most exciting and engaging uh, way to do this podcast. I've been listening to another podcast that had a great social media strategy um, episode and I want to make sure you guys are getting something that you are growing that you are learning and so I'll try to do better about that I mean after all I am an educator so I want to make sure that you leave every episode transformed and you're getting what you want to get out of this other than seeing what some guy in Colorado does uh, with his spare time so as I mentioned my last episode went out July 27th these are a couple of selected activities I have been up to in this philatelic space. I have inherited a pretty good plate block collection from my wife's great-grandmother. I also purchased a plate block collection from a woman down the street in my neighborhood. It was her father's and I had a handful of plate blocks myself as a collector from when I was collecting as a youth. So I thought that as all good stamp collectors do, this is chaotic. It's time to bring some order to this chaos. I'm sure I have several duplicates. And what's the most effective and efficient thing to do with all of these stamps? So I got a Durland catalog. I will put a link to the Durland catalog in the show notes. And essentially think of the Scots catalog as an index of every postage stamp created by the United States. Well, the Durland catalog does the same thing, but for plate blocks. And so when you're looking at plate blocks, they do involve a plate block number. Uh, that is one of the things that makes a plate block. And so there can be different plates that have been used to create a stamp design, a stamp issue. And so it's just good to know like which plate block number you have. Some of these plate blocks are rarer than others, even though it's the same stamp design. A certain plate may have only been used for a month or so. And so the resulting stamps are much rarer. Uh, and more expensive. So that was good to go through all of these different accumulations of plate blocks. I made a pile that was duplicate plate blocks. I actually found some plate blocks that were in albums that were blocks of four. They didn't have the plate number. They were not true plate blocks. So those blocks of four came out, plate block went in, and then I knew what I had and what I could spare. 
So that was good and I'm I'm done with that. I've just got a few souvenir sheets to figure out what to do with, but that was a big looming project for years and years and years and I'm glad to have that done. Then uh, in this same amount of time since April, another neighbor, her father, um, I forget what industry he was in. I think he was in in the law profession. So a lot of correspondence uh, in, he was based in Denver. So a lot of domestic correspondence, some international. And he basically tore stamps off of envelopes and threw them in a shoebox. So I inherited those stamps uh, from my neighbor, Claudia. And I had the shoebox sitting around for a long time, found some time to soak those and get them dried, got them pressed, got them organized. My approach is to organize them into denomination, uh, sometimes get them organized by series. Here's the Prexies. Here's the 1954 Liberty issue, um, just where I think they're going to come in my album as I go through my album. Sorted those stamps, and then I went through the task of checking out to see if I needed some of them. So they're all used. They don't have any gum on the back, and that's okay because with my budget, getting uh, some three-cent, four-cent, five-cent commemoratives that are used that can occupy a space in my album is very satisfying for me. That's that's very amazing. So I go with that. I go for that, and it's absolutely great. And even though I have a fairly good collection, I was able to use many of these stamps that I uh, got from Claudia, thanks uh, to her father. So that was really good, and it was good to keep Claudia up to date on how it's all going. One of the days I was going through the stamps, and I get, sent her a message saying, hey, I'm going through the collection today. It was her father's birthday and he's no longer with us. So that was a really special moment to think about um, her her father and uh, the relationship that they had because she always tells me great stories about him. And it just really is another great reason to get into stamp collecting. There are many great connections uh, with people, uh, with relationships that come through in, in the hobby. And when I had a copy of the stamp, I would check my daughter's collections and I'm saving for them. I'm not putting their stamps in their collection. They each have a a Ziploc bag with their name on it. And I now know um, who has what stamps using my master spreadsheet. And I also realized I was giving my oldest daughter priority and I was giving her more stamps. But now I can say when it was 70 that my youngest had 70% of the stamps my oldest did now we're closer to parity and now we're up to like 90%. I really started to favor my my younger daughter. So that's been fun. Um and now I have a box of off paper, nice flat and pressed US stamps that are yeah, they could be donated, but what I want to do is I want to go into my neighborhood and I've seen a couple of these around my neighborhood. Because uh, I live in, you know, white suburbia, right? So we've got all these little free libraries all over the community. And it's great, uh, very suburban concept and um, great initiative. So there's all kinds of books in there. And if you don't know what this is, it's like take a book, leave a book. So what I want to do is I want to get these stamps. I want to put, you know, 50 or so in a glassine envelope. I want to put some uh, reference material on a little index card in the envelope Uh, where to look for more. I want to provide some tips. I want to provide some ideas on what people can do. And they can take these postage stamps with them and they can look up what they have and they can get some resources on what to do and where to go. 
So I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to design something, put it in an envelope, put these stamps in there, uh, and that'll go into these um, little free libraries throughout my community. Did a lot of custom covers um, in August, a nonprofit that I'm a part of. We uh, ended up dissolving after, gosh, uh, let's see, 40 years, like 40 years. This group started in the 80s out of the uh, the Reagan era, Just Say No movement. And so uh, this is the Community Awareness um, Action Team, Westminster CAT. So what I did is I got the drug-free stamp that was issued in 2020, got that on there, uh, went to the post office in Westminster just down the street from our building uh, where we had office space. Um, this is a cache. This is um, postal uh, stationery from the group with our logo on it. And I had each one of the the cat board members um, sign. So that's a nonprofit group. And I was able to commemorate 40 years of positively impacting the community, educating the community about the dangers of drug abuse. And it was uh, it was a great time. And I was on the board myself for 17 years. Okay, then on September 8th, uh, something happened, you might have heard. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. And so I thought it was an interesting opportunity to throw something together real quick. Uh, her silhouette, uh, her, gosh, what, her insignia, uh, Elizabeth Regina II. And then I have her birth, her death, Queen of the United Kingdom, and the longest reign of any UK monarch at 70 years, seven months. And I got, you know, I had to put this together pretty quick. I wasn't planning on this. I had, uh, you know, a U.S. flag forever stamp. And I had some machins that I picked up when I was at Stanley Gibbons in London. So this is the lowest denomination, I believe, the, the two pence. And I put it on there. I took it to my local library, my local post office, and they did honor my request to cancel this. I don't know if there are any rules or regulations around combining postage on an envelope from different countries. I have seen some other uh, Queen Elizabeth covers that have a, a mashing together, if you will, of machins and of U.S. stamps. And uh, they're very accommodating at my post office. And that's what I did. September 23rd, huge career milestone. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan through and through. So you know I've been watching Albert Pujols this season, his farewell tour. He reached it. He did it, guys. On September 23rd, he hit his 700th career home run. So again, I put a cover together, um, the 1969 professional baseball stamp, as well as a USA Forever flag. And this is going on one of my uh, Cooperstown um, envelopes that was postmarked with my birthday. So number five, Albert Pujols. Uh, My plan is to get a baseball card and to attach the card as the the main cachet. I only have one Albert Pujols baseball card, and it's this one that is in a horizontal layout. So I didn't plan my space very well, and I will try to come across a more portrait or vertically oriented card, and I can get that on there. And that would look very similar to this Roberto Clemente cover that I made September 30th, 1972 is the 50th anniversary. So the semi-centennial of Roberto Clemente gaining his 3000th career hit. So 3000 career hits is a huge milestone in major league baseball. Uh, You know, the really good hitters are getting 200 uh, hits per season. So to get to 3000, you have to be a prolific hitter for a very long time. Roberto Clemente was that. 
Um, and unfortunately, his career and his life was cut short. He was um, on a flight to, I believe, the Dominican Republic uh, to provide some humanitarian aid to the people uh, that were in need and the plane crashed and he did not survive. So in 1972, that was his final at bat of the season and he got his 3000th hit and nobody knew that that would be his final career hit. So I had an eye on this and especially because I've got some Roberto Clemente baseball cards. This is a 1972 Clemente baseball card. And this is a, a Roberto Clemente postage stamp. Oh, I think it came out in 1984. I could be wrong on this. But it is a really nice 20 cent stamp. And I have a Forbes Field Classic Baseball Stadium stamp on there as well. And that is because Clemente did play several seasons in Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. So I got that cover down. And then I have one more cover that I've been able to do this fall. And it's actually for today. I'm recording on October 14th. And 75 years ago today, Major Charles E. Yeager successfully flew his Bell X-1 research plane 700 miles per hour, breaking the sound barrier for the first time, making that the first supersonic flight. Now, I really love this because it's it's aerophilately. Uh, my father-in-law is a major in the U.S. Air Force. Um, this took place at Edwards Air Force Base in California. Uh, and I have a cachet that I created. There's a, a picture, a portrait of Jaeger. Uh, there's his X-1 research plane. And I really thought this would be a great um, cover to make because I love seeing this orange research plane. I saw the X-1 at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum a long time ago. It's amazing to see. Um, it was basically carried up uh, into uh, space, it feels like, but certainly was carried up high in the atmosphere uh, with another jumbo jet, and then it was dropped from that jet. So really amazing thing that happened. And so here is that 1997 uh, postage stamp, a 32-cent stamp, commemorating the first supersonic flight. Um, and that would have been the semi-centennial 50-year anniversary. And now 25 later, years later, I can help commemorate the semi-sesquicentennial 75 years. I also grabbed a 1947 Skymaster airmail five cent stamp, one of those um, stamps that came out of me going through this plate block collection. So I'm going to take that um, in a minute here to my local post office for postmarking. And those are some cu custom covers I've been putting together. Um, this could be a podcast on its own. I've been planning on um, interviewing and having a discussion with my colleagues on the Rocky Mountain Stamp Show Planning Committee. Um, I recognize how fortunate I am to be located so close to Denver, which is a major hub for many activities in the, in the West. And so there has been a Rocky Mountain Stamp Show since at least 1935. So the 72nd anniversary or the 72nd annual stamp show will happen in 2023. You're going to want to Google this Rocky Mountain Stamp Show. And I hope when you Google, you come across some social media. I have been managing... Um, the uh, Facebook and the Instagram account for Rocky Mountain Stamp Show. So you can definitely find our page on Facebook. You can follow us. You can communicate with us there. And also on Instagram, you can find Rocky Mountain Stamp Show. And I have been putting up various images um, and uh, philatelic-related posts related to the, um, the Stamp Show as well. And I am now a volunteer on that planning committee. 
and you're going to want to mark your calendar for May 26th through the 28th in Denver. Uh, on That's 2023. There will be the 72nd Rocky Mountain Stamp Show. I've really been digging into local postal history as well. I've gotten a book called Colorado Territorial and Pre-Territorial Postmarks. I'll be looking at that. I also got several history books on my local town, Lafayette, Colorado. I can find some great accounts of the early post offices and postmasters. Um, also survey and settlement. Um, a very nice overview of businesses and land development for my county. And an illustrated history of Lafayette, Colorado as well. And there are some great pictures in here um, from newspapers, just historic archival photos, um, including some postal-related photos. So I've been learning a lot more about Lafayette's history um, as well as including the postal history. And I have mentioned many times that I did inherit my great-grandmother's stamp collection. So I have been learning a lot more about Arizona postal history because great-grandma was a postmaster in Tombstone, Arizona. And I have gotten a um, postmaster and post office book from her, uh, her daughter, um, my grandmother, uh, Betty. She passed away. Um, this is my wife's grandmother, uh, Betty Macia Newell. She passed away at the age of 104. And so in August, we went and had her celebration of life. And um, five years ago, when we were visiting, she gave me her mother's stamp collection. So that really got me back into stamp collecting. And um, this book was in the family collection. And it's really neat because it's autographed by the authors, uh, by the Theobald uh, husband and wife. And the foreword is uh, written by uh, Barry Goldwater. And Barry Goldwater was a presidential candidate, I believe, in the 1960s. And this is a great um, issue of this book because it's hand-signed by Barry Goldwater. And uh, he's chairman uh, of the board of directors of the Arizona Historical Foundation at the time. Uh, this was published in 1961. So I've read that book and I've learned a lot about the postal history of Arizona and just really about the operations and the running of a post office and how the pay that the postmaster got was so variable. Unfortunately, this book, as being pre-territorial, predates the time that my family member, Edith Macia, served as postmaster. She was postmaster after Arizona became a state in 1912. So um, still really cool to dig in and learn more about great-grandmother, uh, but there's nothing about her directly in here. I am on Post Crossing, and I was so excited to receive a postcard from Belarus. Uh, from another post crosser. Um, sometimes it's hard for me to read uh, these foreign uh, scripts. I cannot tell who sent this to me, but I know I can when I go log the postcard on post crossing. And if you haven't gotten into post crossing, I definitely think you should check it out. It's a great way to get um, some more philatelic excitement in your life. And I also have to give a shout out to Kevin Blackston. Kevin Blackston runs um, a website um, called Philo Satelia, and this is a, um, a great philatelic um, entity that he's created. 
He does a good job putting together free um, United States postage album pages. He updates them every season, every quarter. So you're going to want to check that out. He does a giveaway. And all you simply do is, um, you know, send him an email with your name and you're entered into the drawing. And so I was selected. So this is what Kevin sends me. Uh, This is back in May. Hey, Mike, I hope you enjoy the enclosed cover. Thank you, as always, for reading the post horn. The post horn is the newsletter of his website, and I will put a link to all of that in the notes for this episode. He's got his own kind of like Cinderella um, label that he's created and put on the cover. And he's also got um, Philosatelian <laughs> Post Local. I think he does local postal delivery. Uh, the guy's way into it. And look at that. He does have his own cork cancel too. So just really well done, Kevin. Thank you. And um, gosh, I didn't even tell you what he sent me. Like the, the cover itself is is really cool enough. He sent me um, very timely, uh, given the, the interesting activity with the royal family, uh, the investiture of the Prince of Wales in 1969. So gosh, I don't know what that means, but I did see somebody post not too long ago uh, this 1969 um, issue featuring uh, Prince Charles to commemorate this occasion. Uh, looking uh, like he has uh, just appeared to you in, in a dream or something. <laughs> uh, very wild. So that was uh, a first day of issue to commemorate on July 1st, 1969. So thank you, Kevin. Uh, I'm going to be spending tomorrow at the Denver Young Collectors Club. Uh, this is a club that is run out of the Rocky Mountain Philatelic Library. My daughters and I have been going for several years now. Uh, my wife is interested in going tomorrow since we don't have anything on the on the calendar for the weekend for the first time in a while. So it's about like 9 o'clock to 10.30 in the morning. So we will go and be at the Denver Young Collectors meeting. If you're in the area, you should definitely check this club out. They do great programming, great activities, and they only they always have a huge box of U.S. stamps and a huge box of international stamps. Uh, to pick up and go through. So let's close this out. Thank you for spending time with me on this episode. Again, I'm, I'm strongly considering mixing it up, shaking it up again to make it the most value for the listener. Definitely going to want to look for all of my philatelic presences and activities on my link tree. So linktr.ee backslash dissecting philately, all one word. That will get you to all my links, which do include Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. And you can drop me an email at dissectingphilately at gmail.com. I'll leave you with a really fun quote that I found. The postage stamp is a flimsy thing, no thicker than a beetle's wing. And yet it will roam the world for you exactly where you tell it to. Authored by Evie Lucas. Thank you and have a good day.